Hi everyone, my name is Vanessa Valiuko and welcome to Personal Pans. Conversations about belief, transformation, and all the weird things that we experience. Today's guest is Dr. C.S. Matthews, otherwise known as Professor Wham. She's been teaching in a college setting for 35 years, and she also wrote her dissertation about ethnic and racial tropes, narratives, and aspects of UFO abductions in the U.S. This episode is going to be different from others. Um, it's less a conversation and more of a primer on fascism, white supremacy, and anti-Semitism in the history of UFO cases, and also just in what I love, she has this term called para-weird, white supremacy in para-weird spaces. This has been a problem for as long as there has been a para-weird space, and I think we need to know the roots of it in order to identify what is going on now, call it out, and hopefully do something about it. The, the drive for disclosure, the drive for information is causing a lot of people to overlook some really problematic stuff. And um, I think as a, as a community, we have to not stand for any of that. So uh, grab a pen and paper um, or whatever you use to take notes. I literally was taking notes the entire time she was talking. Um, and, and I hope you enjoy uh, this um, lesson in, in fascism and white supremacy in para-weird spaces from Professor Wham. Yeah, if you could just explain to the audience uh, who you are, and I guess your interest seems like a weird word uh, about the topic, but um, <laughs> <laughs> your well, focus, I guess, on this. Yeah. Well, well um, I, I know what you asked me to come to talk about. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, um, I am I am called Professor Lamb by lots of different people um, in the I guess the para weird community. Um, I'm also known as uh, Dr. C. S. Matthews because I wrote a book about paranormal um, experiences in the Hudson Valley. I do have a PhD in American cultural studies with a focus on. Um, well, I I focused on the the uh, the ethnic and racial um, tropes, narratives, and aspects of the alien abduction narrative in the United States. I wrote this tw over twenty years ago now. Um, it, it I I seem to have been prescient because it's only been in the last three years that I've been glommed by people asking for my dissertation. Obviously, it did not help my job prospects. Um, I also have a, a graduate degree in religious studies, so um, a lot of my research time has been spent looking at um, the relationships between new religious movements, uh, conspiracy theories, um, their intersection with paranormal communities, um, and, and how that plays out. Uh, with different kinds of racial or ethnic tropes, identities, things like that. Um, I've actually written some stuff on what we're gonna talk about tonight, which you specifically asked me to talk about or for us to discuss um, the issue or problem of white supremacy in para communities and its relationship 
obviously white supremacy's relationship to fascism. Um, so I, you know, th those are those are fairly large topics, and they seem very specific. But as you indicated in our when in our pre-recorded conversation, the roots of these things go back really, really far. And so, you know, I there were a number of different ways that I could have approached this in approaching this topic. So, um, I guess what would be helpful for me because you know I've assembled a <laughs> as I often say with Stephanie Quick I've assembled a pile of crap so it's it's like um you know which part of this pile do we begin with um so I always you know ask me questions and I will attempt to address them with um, one way or another and I appreciate that because um Again, I, as I as I mentioned before, I hit record. I I appreciate the fact that you you have this breadth of awareness of um, white supremacy in general, the historical root of it, um, in a in a deeper way than I do. Because for me, so my background is in sociology, and so I see the ways in which all of these things are connected. Right, sociology and women's studies, understanding intersecting systems of oppression, and and so whenever, because I'll see this periodically on Twitter where someone will say, well, I just want to study magic or I just want to study Bigfoot. I don't want to get politics into that. Not realizing that the privilege of thinking that you are outside of politics, it, like that, that is, it is such a, it's such a strange thing to me. Like I, I, the, the politics of the world have everything to do with how I get to live my life and even how I get to inhabit my body. So this, I, the, again, the, that, that just a lack of awareness kind of is staggering to me. Well, right. Well, what I always like to, when I talk about politics with my students, because uh, I do teach a, a, or have been teaching an introductory class to the social sciences in, in uh, a community college setting for, I don't know, I don't know, it seems like 70,000 years now, but it's, I've been teaching, I've been teaching at least part-time, occasionally full-time. I do a different job entirely now, you know, that how I make my money, but um, for probably 35 years, I've been teaching at the college level and I've taught in a variety of settings. But what I tell people is like, well, of course there's politics. As soon as you get two human beings together, you have politics because uh, all politics is, is a way by which power is negotiated and communicated. That's all it is. Uh, and I mean, I know that there was Aristotle's definition of politics, and I don't care about Aristotle because he's dead. And he was wrong most of the time. So, you know, I, I mean, not all the time, but most of the time. And he was even more obnoxious than I am. So, you know, for me, politics is just simply... Um, what it is when different groups of people figure try to figure out how they're going to live with each other um, because differences occur you know you have politics in a family you have politics between friends and I'm not talking about political positions I'm talking about ways in which power is negotiated uh, and 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 communicated and that's it you know it's it's really no more it's no more complicated than that. Obviously, once you develop large systems that people live in, then there are all of these different levels at which you have to negotiate. 
I, th I think that probably one of the best people to describe this without even talking about kind of weird stuff, although he actually ends up venturing into some odd things, is uh, David Graeber, who you met, I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, he, he passed in the spring of 2020. Um, his, you spell his last name, G-R-A-E-B-E-R. And he was both uh, an anthropologist and a historian of uh, economic systems. And um, he proposes a different way of understanding how human societies organize. Uh, and the, 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 the book that for me was the most important book that he wrote, although he, they posthumously have published another thing he was working on. Uh, but it is called, but the one that I really recommend is called Debt, the First 5,000 Years. I think it, I mean, even though it's an economic history, quote unquote, it's actually about politics and it's actually about the ways in which human societies figured out over time um, how to organize themselves around resources. Uh, and, 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 you know, even though he picks apart a lot of different things and uses a lot of different examples, um, he's not overly critical of anything, you know, uh, he's, he doesn't think religion is stupid, for example, like a lot of Marxists do, uh, or even capitalists do, despite their use of it. Um, he doesn't think that, um, he doesn't espouse capitalism or socialism, because as he points out, these are both economic systems that have their roots in um, Western social contract theory. So they're both basically versions of one thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and the fact that they're, you know, we've posited them as warring against each other just means that, you know, the West hasn't figured out a solution for its own canard yet, you know, uh, and, and that other, other um, civilizations and other groups have had all kinds of different ways of organizing political life and economic life and things like that. He doesn't come to a solution in this book. He, he basically just says, listen, the only lie that you've been told is that, is that there's only a few ways to do things. The fact is, is that there are infinite ways to do things. And we just, in, in, it's basically politicians and advertisers who have taught us differently. And um, all you need is more is to have a sense of what, what has happened in the past to understand what is available now. We're just lacking in imagination uh, because we've been, we've been, you know, as sociologists, as a sociologist, you know, we're kind of brought up to fit into these, you know, little, little boxes that, that we're supposed to live in. And, um, and, and those little boxes are are, you know, they're operative, whether you're an occultist or, you know, a paranormal investigator or, you know, just some, you know, poor dude on the street or all of the above, I guess you could be. Um, it, it just, it's a matter of look, being able to see yourself within a context and then try to imagine yourself outside of that box. It's not easy to do. But with information, you can begin the process of doing that. And that's all that he really does. You know, um, uh, he, it, you know he, he was so vilified by, he, despite the, he, the fact that he had, teach, uh, students loved him and he had this huge 
arsenal of you know publications, he couldn't get tenure anywhere in the United States because it, no, you know, he, uh, you know, he just he yeah. didn't fit in the little boxes. You know, <laughs> I mean, anybody that thinks that the American Academy is a bastion of liberalism, I don't know what planet literally they're from. You know, but it's I've never experienced it that way. Um, but anyway, uh, I, so I always recommend him yes. uh, because he he just introduces this idea that, and he uses a lot of stuff from nature, you know. Um, it's kind of like, you know, we one of the things that the West has done, and this can get us into the racial thing, mm-hmm. one of the things that the West has done in its attempt to sort of categorize and kind of control everything uh, is that, um, you know, we, we've tried to reduce biological systems and, and human beings, at least at one point. I, I mean, I think that there are some people that are changing that now, but at least at one point, like in the 18th and 19th century, the whole point of the Enlightenment and the idea of progress was that eventually we'd have all this crap figured out. I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to say and not say in this, so... You talk about whatever. What expletives I'm supposed to use? All all of them. Whatever. (laughs) It's a safe space. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, I'm on a radio podcast where we can't say the F word. So, sure. Because it's, you know, it's broadcast out to, you know, FM stations. But anyway, you know, the whole idea was if we could find a way of categorizing things, that's, you know, that's where the taxonomies of the races came from. Right. You know, um, in, in the, you know, by Linnaeus and then other, you know, um, you know, racial evolutionists of whom, by the way, Darwin was not one. Mm-hmm. He's often blamed for it, but he, in fact, was not that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the uh, and if we can get everybody into these little categories and understand them, then we can maybe control them. Uh, we can predict their behavior. We can, you know, it, it's it's this it's just sort of this Western obsession with control. Um, and trying to sort of rein in this really large, unwieldy thing that is called the human species and the planet itself. Um, in fact, I, I, I kind of think of, uh, you know, when I think of Francis Bacon and his, his, uh, his, uh, his method of, of wanting to, you know, put nature on the rack and, and torture her for her secrets which is something that he talks about in the Novum Organum, um, something that you know he wrote back, I don't know, it was the 17th century, I don't remember, one of these old dudes. You know, um, he, I, when I think about that now, it, it seems to me like a, a real interesting magical operation. And the fact that he was um, writing at about the same time, it, you know, he was in the Elizabethan court, or he was associated with the Elizabethan court. He had to keep running to France because he was gay, and that was punishable by death. But you know, he was writing in the Elizabethan court at the same time that John Dee was there. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and there was this kind of like a little mini renaissance of of occult stuff going on. And it it all, it always makes me kind of wonder whether that was sort of his answer to occult work was the scientific method as he described it, you know, which consisted of 
you know, slicing and dicing nature into little bits, you know, to try to see how it worked, which of course you're never going to see how it works as a whole if you do that. Yes. But anyway, you know, Western science has, you know, and then of course, Gal- not Galileo, um, Isaac Newton was an alchemist, you know, Western mm-hmm. science has about it, a, has in the hist- historically, has about it a kind of mystical quality, this kind of search for a truth that that can get you sort of it, the the grail, the the, the you know the golden thing that is going to fix everything. I mean, I don't. I think most scientists now don't necessarily believe that, right? But certainly, um, the public still does. Or because science is just a human thing and it reveals itself as being fallible and subject to political wobbling, which is what the whole COVID thing has shown us, uh, makes other people feel disaffected by it, you know, and then they start believing in crap like the flat earth and, you know, all that weird stuff, you know, it's kind of like, it's sort of, it's this weird sort of adolescent, well, if it doesn't work here, then it's all wrong. It's so bizarre. When, when I when I think of how immature human cult, uh, American cultures are about this kind of stuff, I just don't even know what to say. But anyway, um, well, race fits into this yes. because race, as as uh, you know, one of the first people to talk about race and to actually explicitly join race, for example, the idea of race with the idea of extraterrestrial um, uh, exploration or mm-hmm. speculation, I guess, was Kant, Immanuel Kant. He wrote, a, he wrote an essay in which he speculates based on the different types of humans that he has heard about. He hasn't seen them all, but he's heard about them, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, what what um, people on Venus might look like or people on Mars might look like or, you know, so he yeah. speculates on this. And of course, you know, I mean, his taxonomy is stupid, you know, for him, it's like the reason why Hottentots, and those are black people, you know, people, anybody from Africa was a Hottentot. Um, the reason why Hottentots are dark is because they're closer to the sun and <laughs> <Get> burnt, <laughs> you know. So of course he doesn't understand, you know, lots of things but you know the point is is that he's 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 joining the idea he's speculating about you know what what extraterrestrials might look like based on what he thinks is going on with humans um uh, and of course you know he thinks that people in the northern climes are superior to people who are getting burnt because well i don't know because i guess it's more temperate in the north i don't know you know i mean you read him now and you're like okay dude <laughs> that's wrong but anyway um so you know th- so that's sort of like that's how it went um and and you know if you want to do like a really quick and dirty history of all this you know through the 19th century you have all of these different thinkers scientific thinkers, occult thinkers, spiritualist thinkers, all trying to answer the question of why there are so many different types of people. Um, mm-hmm. Which of course for us, for, you know, for us now, we're like, well, 
that's kind of a dumb question. But anyway, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, but it wasn't dumb for them because there were empires at stake mm-hmm. and there were some really, you know, there are some really definite differences in culture between people. And there are a few, you know, they're not high level biological differences, but, you know, there are a few interesting variations of humans, you know, now that we know that, you know, some of us have Neanderthal and some of us, Mm -hmm. you know, now we know how complex that whole DNA heredity thing is, um, Mm -hmm. you know, so there there are some distinct, you know, um, biological clusters and stuff. Um, But for them in the 19th century, uh, this was, you know, trying to figure this out was kind of the issue of the hour. And so people came up with different ideas, people who were more scientifically oriented, like Darwin, for example. Um, For him, these were just different variations. Now he, you know, he did not actually, you know, I'm sure you know, but not, not all your listeners may know that he did not coin the phrase survival of the fittest that was right. coined by a, a a journalist um huxley i believe it was in uh the 1840s and and later editors joined that to um later editions of darwin's work uh so that they became sort of you know darwin never liked that because that's not that that implies progress you know survival of the fittest that implies progress and he mm-hmm. was saying no these variations are random variations that occur um, people often also don't understand that the initial objection especially in the united states that people had to darwin did not have to do with um the fact that or the idea that this had that that natural selection was an atheistic process but rather darwin clearly implied that that black people and white people and uh, you know people of all these different colors and types were one species he clearly implied that and that really upset a lot of people Um, so kind of in contrast to that you have these other racial theories that develop um, some of which have what we would call extraterrestrial connections. Uh, one of these, of course, is the theosophical idea of brute races, which was developed in, in, in actual opposition to Darwinism. I mean, you know, Blavatsky um, and her progeny, you know, uh, actually really d- did not like Darwinism because to them it, it, or those kinds of theories, because to them it seemed, those theories seemed to be too not directed enough you know, too open to chance, so to speak. Sure. Um, and so the idea of the root races gives you a sense that there are these different groups of humans, but th- their evolution is being directed by some type of interior spiritual force over the course of many, you know, mm-hmm. epochs or ages or whatever. So you do have a kind of evolution there, um, but it's, it's a directed evolution. And then you had other um, interesting variations of this, like um, what you have in the OASPI book, which is kind of like, you know, I don't know if you're even familiar with that. A lot of people aren't, but it was um, written by or channeled or whatever by um, uh, uh, John Bell and Newbrow, 
a Cincinnati dentist <laughs> who figured out, I'm sorry, it just cracks me up, who figured out how to, how to use the newly invented typewriter for, um, 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 uh, what is it, automatic writing. Automatic writing, yeah. <laughs> yeah so he created this really interesting manuscript, which actually is interesting. It has some interesting things in it. It has some kind of startling things in it. Um, but he create he basically tells an entirely alternative history of the earth. And he's answering both, he's he's also he's critical not only of Darwin, but also of theosophy. So and he's a spiritualist. So he's he's kind of doing double duty there, but he also has been influenced by um, oh, what's his name? Andrew Jackson Davis, the great spiritualist of the 19th century, um, who uh, and and in so doing, he 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 believes that you know these directing forces and argues that these directing forces um, are actually extraterrestrials. He calls them Ethereans, and they come down and they they help. They are helping to direct the evolution of several different types of species. I mean, his his approach was a little bit different. He was like, well, you know, God, who he calls Jehovah, what a weird thing. But anyway. Uh, God, I, 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 if there are any Orospians in the in the audience, they're going to hate me because, because I just think of the names that he picks. It's like these were just obvious misspellings, you know. <laughs> but anyway, um, anyway, um, and they're just going to hate me for not being fair to their religion. But um, you know, from his perspective, there were several distinct races that were formed. God originally did not want them all to mix, but now they've all mixed. So, oh, well, let's just, we can't unmix them now. So, so we'll just have to figure out how to live together in harmony, essentially, which to me is wonderfully practical, you know, and, and as part of that, you know, I mean, in some ways, uh, you know, I mean, he decried, you know, he was an abolitionist. He decried, uh, Jim Crow laws and the ways in which um, colonial folks uh, treated indigenous people. He, I mean, he he wrote this really really bad novel about that. You know, I mean, it's like a terrible novel. You try to read it, you're like, this is crap. <laughs> you can still find copies of it at, at, at the uh, at the, um, the Library of Congress. Why they've kept it, I don't know, but. <laughs> You know, but he is he is incensed by the way in which white people had treated indigenous people. Uh, so, you know, he had a he so automatically you see there's a political thing here. Uh -huh. You know, um, the way we see each other, the way we understand our origins does affect how we see ourselves politically. I mean, it just does that just it just does because it's it's where we get our identities from right it's it's how we create our sense of self i mean you know this as a sociologist it's how we create our sense of self how we learn how to talk to each other how we learn how to be with each other um but and then and then with throughout the late 19th century into the early 20th century you have a series of what i call occult speculative fiction um, books. Mm -hmm. Probably the two most famous are The Dweller on Two Planets um, or The Coming Race, you know, by Bowler Lytton, uh, which got picked up by certain groups, um, not so much German Nazis, but American Nazis. Yeah. And uh, 
and and the, even though I don't think either one of those books is is explicitly racist in the manner that we may, now may, may mean, because of the language that's used in them, um, and because of the white privilege of the of the authors who are writing, who are appropriating Tibetan things or Egyptian things or you know whatever they're doing. Um, it, it, it's very easy for subsequent people to use that material for their own their own purposes, mm -hmm. um, and a lot, and that those are things that very explicitly join race, certain kind of racial ideas, with extraterrestrial ideas, um, and and certain occult ideas. All those things are sort of blended together, mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know. Now these are separate from fascism. You know, I mean, I know we talked about defining what fascism is um, and just fascism is a political philosophy. It's a political ideology uh, that even though we associate it with Germany, it actually developed first in Italy and it was first described by Mussolini. Um, and it, it's a very specific kind of political ideology that came out of the problems of the new industrial nations in the late 19th and early 20th century. It was actually seen by many as, as an adequate solution to, to some of those problems which are intractable. You know, the, the English, the English response is utilitarian. So, you know, <laughs> the continental response is fascism, <laughs> among other things, you know, you know mm -hmm. to some of the same problems. Um, but um, the, what distinguishes fascism from, say, just right-wing stuff is that fascism uh, is a kind, it's a hyper-nationalism. It sees the nation, it, it tries to, and, and Mussolini is pretty specific about this, it tries to organize the nation uh, and, the, and, of course, the government, which is going to control the nation, as a kind of cult, it's a kind of personality cult. Uh, uh, and to this end, all of the economic forces of the state are going to be bent to the service of the state, which automatically means, uh, I mean, so it's not free enterprise. The only reason why fascists have, have, have been able to ally themselves with capitalists is because most capitalists aren't really capitalists. Um, I mean, if they haven't, you know, I've, I've yet to read, uh, I, I've yet to read, I've yet to meet, you know, a, a laissez-faire capitalist who has actually read Adam Smith. Uh, he, you know, and they, um, they're basically people that are just out for money. They're crime syndicates. And in fact, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, that's kind of what, Mussolini is describing is the state, the nation state is a kind of cult syndicate. Uh, and, and it operates sort of like the mafia does. You know, he uses the mafia as kind of a guide there. Um, and the and so you have a, a charismatic leader at the top of it. And uh, they are the ones who are going to, through their minions and and all that economic activity control the rest of the population through fear. Uh, but you don't want to just control them by fear. You also want to convince them. So you have to give them some things. You know, um, you have to, first you have to give them an enemy. 
And Mussolini is really clear about that. You have to give them an enemy. You have to give them a you have to give them a war. You have to give them a fight because nothing unifies people like a good fight. And so, uh, you know, depending on who you were or who you've been, um, you know, race, ethnicity, religion, those are really easy things to point at, you know, to, uh, to, to make, those are easy pot ways to make divisions between people and to fight, it cause fights between people. Um, and, you know, once you, and, and you also want to give your chosen population, who the chosen people are, you know, once you've purified and expunged all the bad blood or bad whatever, um, then you want to make sure that you promise things to these people that are chosen. So, you know, when you look at Nazi Germany, for the rank and file German, you know, you got a lot of things. You got job security, you got, you got socialized medicine, you know, you got all those things. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but the, obviously there was this tremendous personal price that you paid for that in a lot of ways. Um, but fascism is a political ideology and, it, and it, it doesn't just take one form. Um, Mussolini is who gave it its name and who described what he would consider the ideal fascist state. But there are lots of other organizations that might take on fascist overtones. And you have to distinguish that from white supremacy because there are actually a lot of white supremacy movements like in the United States that they wouldn't necessarily like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, um, it, and it depends on where they're coming from. You know, it depends on whether they are esoteric Hitlerists or it depends on whether they are, you know, just, just people who align themselves with, oh, I don't know, any of these weird groups that are espoused off Fox, you know, or Trump, you know, I mean, a lot yeah. of Trumpsters, if you were to actually explain this to them, they would not agree with Nazis or agree, you know, with uh, that, you know, the classic definitions of fascism. And there are leftist organizations that can come uncomfortably close to that. I mean, I think of Stalin's Soviet Union as a great example of Putin's Soviet Union, well, Soviet Union, Putin's Russia, um, as, as a great example, uh, great examples of, you know, leftist organizations that are pushing really close to definitions of fascism. So, you know, um, how does this work its way into the para-weird stuff? Well, you know, there are lots of elements of, of fascism in para-weird. Uh, you, you know, you've probably heard of William Pelley. Uh, he, who um, was a, he was actually a very well-known screenwriter uh, in the 1930s and 40s, a uh, uh, political activist. He, he ran for president <laughs> during the, 18th, the 1940s. He hated um, FDR. Uh, but he was an avid UFO um, investigator. Uh, he, he actually founded a, a, um, a, a Nazi UFO group called the Silver Shirts. And, and he um, was a Nazi sympathizer and a fascist from day one. So, you know, he, he wrote a number of books. He's a very good writer. He actually won awards for his short stories prior to becoming all of this. Um, 
He was imprisoned in 1942 because by that time we'd entered the war, but he was still a Nazi, you know, a Hitler sympathizer. So he was sent to prison for, I don't know, seven years or something for sedition. Few years, I don't remember exactly how many. Um, and, but his work is still out there. You know, um, uh, then there's George Hunt Williamson, who is, uh, <laughs> whose work, um, again, a, a, a neo-Nazi kind of dude, um, wrote, has written extensively about UFO contact. Uh, and some of his stuff has made its way into, you know, the new age community. Um, I mean, we can talk about the connections between, you know, Alice Bailey's theosophy and, and uh, the exteriorization of the esoteric hierarchy, as she calls it, you know, and, and uh, um, uh, the occultist Schwaller de Lubitz, who is known for his Temple of Man a series mm -hmm. uh and but who was an avid anti-semite i mean just terrifying anti-semites uh I, I mean and but his work his occult work has filtered into various places i mean it's it's all in there mm -hmm. um it's it's not you can draw straight lines and it's not everybody but it's been present enough over time that um, it is not surprising whatsoever that you have people in the paraword community. And face it, we're in, you know, even though we're more mainstream than we used to be, uh, we're still out, we're still weird, okay? We're still out there. So you're going to get a few out there people who are out there, out there. And, you know, it's just, <laughs> they're multiply indexed in, in weird stuff. And so some of the weird stuff they're indexed in is fascism and white supremacy and other things <laughs> you know i mean you can be multiply indexed as a as a at what at, it's not friend who is it it's homie baba homie baba you can be multiply indexed as a i'm showing my um critical studies credentials here uh, you can be you can be multiply indexed as a subaltern or you can be multiply indexed as a as a, uh, you know, a privileged white person. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so it shouldn't surprise us that, uh, you know, this kind of thing comes together, you know. I think it just, I mean, maybe it's because I'm just, an, I'm older than dirt now, but, you know, I, I find that, I find that the, the, the younger folks, the 20s and 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, they're the ones that are startled by this. I'm like, I've been living this my entire life, you know. This is what I wrote my dissertation on 20 years ago. So, yeah, you know, yeah, it's still there, you know. Bud Hopkins, God bless his dead name, he, you know, he, well, and he was not a bad person. But, you know, he had this, he had this collection of, I don't know, six, seven, eight hundred um, accounts of alien abduction. And when he was confronted with the fact that only like four or five of them, or, you know, a very tiny number were of African-American or non-white people, he was startled because it never occurred to him. And yet he was touting this as a universal narrative. Sure. Okay, you know, his narrative of, 
of why you know people are abducted which of course talks about genetic material and how they want us and we already know about the problems with david jacobs so it's you know i mean who i never cared for and go after intensely in my dissertation it's like hey dude <laughs> but um mm -hmm. anyway um so you know yeah I, yeah, I completely get it. You know, I, it doesn't surprise me that people get out all the time. It's like, yeah, well, yeah, I did. I see this. Well, and I think so. So I'm 39, and okay. I, I don't know that I. So I, I will speak to this idea of like being surprised because I was definitely raised with this idea of not that we're over racism or anything because clearly you know watching barack obama ascend and then watching the absolute um frothing at the mouth rabid hatred that was coming out of the right it's like his policies are pretty close to your guy um i'm pretty sure there's one reason why you're angry about it and it it's his race um but but this this i think because i grew up also again, in college, you know, talking about queer theory, because I, I was, in the, you know, working in the women's studies department, too. And, and um, this idea of, of uh, uh, intersectionalism, right, understanding these things, and then seeing these terms kind of hit the mainstream. And so I think there has been this glossing over of, uh, of white supremacy and, and, mm -hmm. and of virulent anti-Semitism in, in so many of these fields, this belief that we have moved past it. Again, this narrative of, oh, those people are dying out, people who are racist, people who are anti-Semitic, ableist, whatever. Um, and, and so I'm, I, I, not that I was necessarily surprised. I was surprised by uh, how, Again, and again, I, I've been familiar also with Gamergate and things like that, where you have these alt-right spaces. Again, when I saw the ascendancy of the Tea Party, I knew this was trouble. Um, so I, I've had an awareness of this kind of like alt 4chan uh, uh, nihilistic memory that's been going on. These unhappy people who have to project their unhappiness. Yes, exactly. And are looking to find power and are finding power in, like you say, with fascism, this uh, need to have an enemy. And this is what I had emailed you about before, not understanding like, okay, th this is an ideology that thrives on having an enemy. They always need new enemies. If one is eliminated, they find another one, right? right. And I think that's why like white supremacy and fascism and anti-Semitism, all these things end up blending together because it's, it's oh, everybody else is the enemy. Everyone else who doesn't look like me, everyone else who doesn't think the way I do, um, they're, they're the problem, they're, they're the issue. Um, and so it's, the part of it is a shock, but part of it is not. I think the shock is more that um, it is so insidious and that people are unaware of, again, the dog whistles, the, um, the, the subtlety, I guess. People seem to think, and I think I also thought too, that uh, racism, anti-Semitism, people are pretty open about it um, if they really believe this kind of thing. But now the, the training of, we have to stay under the radar and that's how we can better infiltrate and, and also teaching them, okay, keep the worst things you believe to yourself 
until mm -hmm. you get into these spaces, until you are respected in these spaces, and then you slowly start peeling back layers and to get people invested in the more nefarious uh, aspects of your belief system. Well, it's, exa well, it's exactly the same strategy that the uh, religious right used in the 1970s and 1980s. Right. Um, there was a book that was written way back, I think in 1980, I, it's been out long out of print, but it's called Holy Terror. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's, it's, it, it was basically a, uh, it's basically a, a published series of, in, and this is before the internet, okay, so it's basically, a, 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 it, basically the, the authors doing exactly what you're not supposed to do as sociologists, but they weren't sociologists, they were journalists, so they didn't, yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, Basically, they infiltrated themselves into uh, organizational committees uh, that were part of a, a newly ascendant groups, uh, religious right groups that were going to um, try to influence the 1980 election of, of Ronald Reagan. And so they were, um, you know, the, uh, the they they infiltrated gr groups that were um, part of the cabal, and it was basically a cabal that, that took over the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, uh, in the 1970s, and, and part of, uh, uh, and, and became part of the moral majority, you know, J Jerry Falwell's uh, political organization in the early 1980s. And basically what they did was they infiltrated these groups, they got all their memos, att attached kind of a loose narrative and published the whole thing. This is what these people are doing. This is what their goal for America is. This is before CPAC, okay? This is what their this these people's goal is. And really what it is, since a lot of these groups are from the South, you know, the Deep South, you know, I read it now and it's like, well, this is just a revenge of the South. You know, the, these are people that are trying to take over, um, are trying to win the Civil War again. And they're just trying to do it a different way. And that they are, they're doing this. And one of the, one of the, you know, strategies was to, um, was to try to infiltrate as fundamentalists as try, were try to infiltrate established Christian groups, mm -hmm. mainstream groups like Presbyterians, Methodists, uh, the American Baptists, Lutherans, etc. Uh, and, and, and even the Catholic Church to some degree, which of course for them is the big enemy. And they successfully did this. They caused schisms in those denominations uh, where various members of those denominations would develop a, you know, a, a fundamentalist branch and would break, you know. So all of these attempts, uh, these evangelical ecumenical attempts by uh, a lot of larger mainstream Christian denominations, a lot of that effort was destroyed or, or seriously curtailed in the 1980s by this these infiltration of this group it's it's exactly the same strategy you just make yourself over into something a little bit nicer you know you don't reveal who you really are you make these radical views seem rational yes yeah and you can and you can see that in you know the latest crop of the neo-nazis you know who 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 you know complain because they start spouting their canard on on the on, on the street corner people punch them you know I you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell anybody to punch anybody but you know if you 
to me, there's, there's no negotiating with a Nazi because they are not interested in negotiation. They are interested in stopping discussion. Exactly. Yes. Not interested in discussion. Yes, they they thrive on it. They and they also thrive on again. It was so um, infuriating to watch the normalization of uh, Richard Spencer, right? The like cleaned up Nazi, essentially, and the, this new face of the alt right. However, David David, David Duke was the first person like that. You know, people forget that he actually was. He actually organized a major branch of the KKK. He was a grand duke of the KKK. Right. And it's he he did not reform. He just developed a nicer face. He did quit so he could run for office, but he did not reform. You know. Yes. So yeah. And that so this is and 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 this too, because I, I think of this especially in terms of things like 4chan, where people are organizing. I mean, there are other organizations too, Order of Nine Angles. Um, that are, are I very. About, I was just reading about them today. There you go. Exactly. And you can they, get your books on Amazon. <laughs> They're touting themselves as a mystical esoteric order now. Uh, I mean, I basically, anybody can basically call themselves that now, anyway. But, but just the, what I think that's why I wanted to talk to you so much and why I want to release this because I don't think people have an awareness of how organized they are how agenda-driven they are and how willing they are to lie and gaslight you to, to have an appearance of they're not that bad, they're rational people, they just want to have a debate, they just want to have a conversation. And like you said, they're not actually interested in conversations. They're not interested in opinions or beliefs that are different than theirs. They have decided that what they want is right. All of us are corrupted. Again, you brought up the idea of the religious right. And, and my mother is evangelical, that idea of anything that isn't God is the devil, right? Anything that isn't their political ideology is corrupted, is dirty. Again, that's those are also code words for anti-Semitism that get wrapped up in all of this. Well, there's a purity code and that, pur- that purity code can become either, it's either, you know, it's, it's either ideological purity or it can very easily become blood purity. I mean, it's, it's you know, that's where that language comes from. It actually comes from this idea that that it is possible for the blood to be tainted. I think ultimately, honestly, I think it comes from the idea of original sin. I I will lay this at the at the feet of of Christianity personally, uh, because of a certain type of Christianity, uh, because um, if you have this idea that it's possible to be tainted, whether uh, it's blood tainting or ideological tainting or spiritual tainting, then automatically there's this sense in which you have to be purified. And from there, the paranoia can grow. I mean, if you think about like, these are kind of like Gnostic myths, you know, in Gnosticism, human beings are trapped uh, in this, in, in some, by, by forces beyond us called the archons, they're trapped, we're trapped in this physical world and we're, and we're struggling to, to find who our, what our true essence is and who we are. Um, and in certain types of Gnosticism, uh, the body itself or certain ideas uh, taint or, or intr- make it difficult for your, your, your pure essence to ever really know what it is. I mean, I, I mean ultimately, I think that... Um, I think that a lot of these things are Gnostic uh, myths, 
uh, and and in Gnosticism, you're constantly having to struggle with external forces that are trying to control you, and so it's like a war. It's a constant war um, that you're waging, and the war can be external or internal, um, and and there's always an apocalypse, you know. Now, part of the reason why I think that some of this stuff is is continuing to generate itself, other than the fact that human beings have lost the ability to have new ideas, is um, that if you think about capitalism and socialism, Marxism and capitalism, both of those um, social uh, political theories posit a kind of a kind of a heaven on earth in a weird sort of way. I mean, obviously with Marxism, you have the communist utopia. And in capitalism, you have this idea of perpetual progress, you know, where eventually I guess it will become like Star Trek and all of our needs will be met or something, even though somehow Star Trek transcends that, you know, whatever. But um, it's, I mean, Andrew Carnegie said it best that that wealth will do for us what God's kingdom could not or Christ's kingdom could not. So, but the problem is, is that that's the end of history. Right. Okay, things end then, if that's, if that's the case. And obviously we don't have the end of history and neither one of those political economic systems <laughs> have, have worked. You know what I mean? Neither one of them have borne the promised fruit, right? So here we are left with this shit, you know, <laughs> in, in the middle of everything. And it's a mess. And, they're in, you know, you know the word anomie. We're yes. in this, anomie. We're in this mess. And some people are really, really, really looking for an answer that is simple, that will give them a sense of self that will give them something they can commit to themselves to, uh, a fight that they can that they can identify with, and you know, racist whatever race is, race is still that, culture is still that, religion is still that, um, even though you know, a little bit of thinking will reveal how stupid that is. But you know, if I'm if I'm on top of a blasted world, then who cares? And that's really what that's really what. Not the 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 you know the order of nine angles says they acknowledge that they're gonna you know their activity is going to destroy the world but they're going to be on top of it so who cares mm -hmm. you know it's completely nihilistic it's yeah. bizarre yes you know and that's why they consider you know groups like the temple of set and and uh, and and the church of satan to be enemies of theirs because both of those organizations are all about advocates. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and just you know, using using your your hedonistic impulses to actually sort of do a kind of real tantra at some level. You know what I mean? Kind yes. of a Western version of that. But you know, these people are like, screw this, fuck it, let's <laughs> blow it up. And I'm like, okay, that's like really weird, but. Well, okay. So again, getting back to your comment about original sin, because the way you're describing it to me, I hadn't thought about it that way before, but it's, it's essentially that self-flagellation, but writ large, right? That I'm miserable. I'm not worth it. I suck. It sucks. It sucks. Exactly. So since it sucks, it should be destroyed. And... <laughs> 
<laughs> the Messiah isn't coming, so fuck it. <laughs> yes. Literally. It's like, you know, got to destroy the world in order to save it. It's no different than any fundamentalism. It's no different. And I mean, that to me, that's why fascism and fundamentalism find common purpose. Yes. They're both about, it's all sucks. So whatever, okay. you know what I mean? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. It sucks. The human experience sucks. It's all bullshit. I also, as you were talking, thought about two different things. One, um, Tocqueville, I always think about like his writing after he visited um, oh, early yeah. America, right? And the first time Not he comes to Tocqueville. <laughs> <laughs> no, because the first time he comes, he's like, this is great. Everything's amazing. You can make all these choices and do all these different things. And Except then Americans have really rotten teeth because they eat too much bread. They <laughs> 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 have really rotten teeth. Oh, God. <laughs> exactly. But, but then after he spends some time here and goes back, he's like, wait a minute, they aren't actually free. There's this appearance of freedom, but it's only, again, I was thinking about what you were saying in terms of um, um, David Graeber, right? That idea of like, you know, he's like, well, let's think of something else that there's no, uh, uh, that, that seems kind of frowned upon, right? Like, oh, you, you get to have freedom, but within these prescribed ways of being free. And if you even talk about something outside of what we are selling to you as freedom, then it, again, you're like cast out, shunned, like they don't even know how to handle that. Well, yeah. Well, and he does. It's not even that he says, "Let's try to think of something else." He just says, "Let's look at what other people did." <laughs> you know, before the West decided it knew everything, you know. I mean, it's yes. you know what what did other people do? How did other societies organize themselves? How did they handle these problems? Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they did. Now, his work is not perfect. Like, for example, in in that book because he clearly, when he's writing it, doesn't know about this stuff. There's a huge paucity of information about certain civilizations in Africa and certain civilizations in, in the Americas. And it's clear that he just doesn't know. Yeah. You know, and in fact, in the last book that was written, some of that is addressed, mm-hmm. you, know, um, you know, so he, he, he can't talk about, you know, the Haudenosaunee Great Law of Peace. He can't talk about, you know, um, the, the, um, the, the civilizations in Central and South America that had these very complex systems of, of, uh, of, of um, both, both kind of like ownership, but also other ways in which people could interact with markets. He just, he just doesn't have any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, those are, those are things that you can address just by getting new information. Uh, the point is, is that even in the past that we know about, when you're talking about Egypt or India or China, you know, human beings have been organizing themselves in large entities for a long time. And, and some of these civilizations thought up really novel things, novel ways of approaching problems. The problem with Americans and the West is that if the problem isn't, if, if the solution isn't permanent, an instant. We have no patience with going through the process. And that that's a function of our technology. You know, that's a function of, of, of our privilege of thinking that we need to have everything brought to us immediately or figure it out immediately. It's like, if we can't figure it out now, then 
screw it once right. again, screw it, because we, we certainly know how to shoot each other. You know, we certainly know how to, we certainly know how to commit acts of violence. We know how to do that. We'll do that. Um, it, it, it's so bizarre. And I, and I really think it's, it's as a result of, of growing too quickly, mm-hmm. not having uh not having a clear sense of, of where, of why we're doing what we're doing. You know, well, uh, even science does this, you know, it's like scientists, they're curious but they will, they will do certain types of activities or, or do certain types of experiments on people or with animals or just with the planet that it's like, when you think about it afterwards, it's like, uh, did you guys not think about that first? And they didn't because they were just like, well, let's go and see what happens if we just, you know. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of dumb there. Yeah, well, and and... Oh boy, I got so much that I want to say. Um, well, and again, talking about that anomie and 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 how, um, you know, again, how fascism thrives, how white supremacy thrives in low trust societies, and yeah. we have there's so much going on. We have informational access to things that are going on around the globe, and mm-hmm. and the sense of overwhelm, the sense of lack of control, and what is our place in it? Where do we belong within it? And then. Oh God, it's, it's, it, I think also aside from you know, technology kind of um, warping our sense of, of uh, you know, again, this idea of instant gratification. I also think we've done, been done a huge disservice where people seem to think that social change just came from doing a couple protests and that was it. We don't really have that awareness of what uh, protest culture looked like, what civil rights culture really looked like, and how it's years and decades of sustained action and deliberate action in order to make the changes that you want to see in the world. I it, Somebody referenced something uh, in, in, in contrast to the um, people protesting out of the Supreme Court, in front of the Supreme Court justices' houses. Uh, well, as long as they peacefully protest, the Iraq war protest millions of people were were protesting in it it um and they were peaceful it's like yeah and they also did it on one day and nothing fuck all changed right the because whoever in charge knew oh yeah everybody just went back to work everybody just went back and lived their normal lives and thought that one declaration would somehow change the world like you the again, there are no easy solutions. There are also no fast solutions to any of this. Part of the reason why, like you said, you know, these, these far-right groups have been infiltrating various religious movements, various political movements. Again, they, they're being taught to run for office and, 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 and be a part of this. So they're getting laws changed. They're going to get role overturned, right? Like, right we don't, we just have been, again, I think like speaking to like my age and younger, that complacency of like, well, this is how the world is not realizing like, this is the world that was fought for. And right. and you have to keep fighting if you want it to continue the right. way you want it. Well, I think, I think both the right and the left though operate, there is an American, there is an American idea that if you pass a law, and the, and the right believes this too. I yeah. mean, if you pass a law, that that automatically fixes whatever is supposed to be fixed. 
And the left is wrong about that, and the right is wrong about that. And, and the reason we know that is because of the experiences of the founding fathers. And I always like to go back to the founding fathers, not because I agree with them so much, but because their whole process of establishing the, the nation, because the nation, the United States as a national entity, was established, at least in a European sense, was established in a completely different way than any other nation had ever been established up to that point. And um, it was, you know, it was an attempt to create a nation based essentially on three pieces of paper that was completely theoretical. And so they just said, well, but they had this, this weird, you know, rationalist idea that somehow it would work. So they just sort of launched it, you know. And of course, it didn't work like that at first. And so eventually, you know, the, you know, the art, at first it was a confederacy and, you know, after the revolution and, and that, and that didn't work. And so then you, they had to come up with the, the, the constitution and, and it was hard to get people to sign on to the constitution. In fact, I, you know, I live in New York and New York was one of the last states to sign on uh, to the constitution. And I think they, there was like a deal that was done you know, in order to do that. Um, but, but even then, you know, it was sort of, in the beginning, they understood that it was a process, that it was, and that it was, I think that they did understand that it was imperfect and that it was a process. And that, especially we know that in Europe, uh, the French, for example, they didn't think this was going to last for more than 20 years. <laughs> you know, they, you know, so they were like waiting at every opportunity for, for something to happen. But, um, I mean, there's a lesson there, and but there's another lesson. I was just thinking of this as you were talking. Hold on, I have yeah. to pull something off my see my show. I see. do, I love it. <laughs> this is actually a book I've been working through, mm. and and we can sort of use this as a book of contrasts. All right, um, this this is a book called um, The Gontawissus. Uh, Iroquoian Women by um, Barbara Alice Mann, who is one of the, uh, she probably is uh, one of the premier historians of the Haudenosaunee people, specifically the Seneca. But what this book is about is it's a history. It's the only history like this that has ever been written. It's a history about the, uh, the um, Iroquois Confederacy or the Haudenosaunee, as they refer to themselves, Confederacy which was a political entity that existed when the when settlers arrived in you know North America and it's the history of this and it's taken not only from oral sources obviously but it's also taken from um, archaeological sources what archaeology has shown and it also is taken from uh, uh, the, 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 the Confederacy continued to exist for quite a while at, until after the Revolutionary War. And in fact, actually, it still does exist. It's just not organized in quite the way that it was originally. And, and what, what it's trying to be, re, the, the, like the Cayugas and the Oneidas are trying to reestablish um, traditional clan um, hierarchies in um, here in the Finger Lake areas in, in New York State. And it's caused some real problems because there are some Cayugas that are hooked up with the state of New York and they don't want to do that. And, and, and uh, others that are more traditional that want to go back 
rematriate, they say, because mm -hmm. the, the, the thing about the about the Haudenosaunee is that it was a system in which men and women um, had equal power. And they and they and and this was a process that evolved over time. It was not something that just occurred because you know the Haudenosaunee are so enlightened. And they talk about this. Uh, essentially, uh, the, uh, the 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 Haudenosaunee have a fairly extensive history, but uh, what led to this particular type of political uh, confederacy uh, was that they were heavily involved with the Mississippian cult, which. Uh, <clears throat> was the third the third wave if you will of an of, of a series of cults that came up from mexico and central america bringing new agricultural technology you know first it brought maize and then it brought other kinds of things and but with with this technology with these new types of agricultural technologies these technologies were linked to cults, obviously, you know, the, uh, and, and different political practices. Some indigenous peoples in North America accepted them, some did not. Uh, some, you know, so, or, or accepted different aspects of them. So the, 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 uh, the Seneca in particular uh, <clears throat> became very involved with the Mississippian culture in, or their version of it, in the Ohio Valley and up through the Great Lakes. And, um, it eventually led to a, uh, a situation where you have a priestly elite who's kind of lording it over everybody else. I mean, this sounds familiar. This is the story they tell. A priestly elite who is lording over everybody else, who's forcing other people to, 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 um, to grow corn and other agricultural products that they aren't permitted to use or eat them themselves. They have to send it to this pre these priestly temples, you know, those, those big temples that they have. In, in Ohio, and eventually, what ended up happening is that um, people got pissed off <laughs> about it, and and the the person who's credited with starting the rebellion that led to a civil war is a woman who's who was is called her, her name became a, a title Jagansasa, and she she started a she started a rebellion. She said, "Screw this." I need to feed my family. I need to feed my village. And they started doing this and it led to a civil war, a huge civil war uh, that led to, you know, cannibalism and all kinds of stuff, which they talk about very openly in their oral tradition. But what ended up happening eventually is that, um, you know, and this is also a religious story, but what happened eventually is that um, a, 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 the, a, an individual who in the tradition is called uh, the peacemaker. He has a title, which I'm not gonna utter because if you're not Haudenosaunee, you're not supposed to say it, um, but he's called the peacemaker. He's sort of a messianic figure in a way, but basically uh, he, he with assistance, I mean, this is a whole long story. He, he develops uh, an idea about how to join. It's, it's essentially a, it's essentially a kind of federalism. It's a political, it's a political vision yeah. that he has about how to stop this civil war and, and bring together the different Haudenosaunee, uh, the different Haudenosaunee Iroquois nations yeah. into one people. But the only way this can be accomplished is not in any kind of top-down way, but but he has to go and make peace with those people who started the civil war out of rebellion because he has to convince them 
the women particularly, he has to convince them that uh, this isn't just another form of hierarchy. This isn't just another form of elitism. So there's this really interesting melding that occurs between an older, more um, you know, matrix-centric, village-oriented uh, order with this, this political um, religious vision, spiritual vision, I guess, really, mm -hmm. that the peacemaker has. And over time, and it took centuries, over time, there developed this very cohesive political order in which men and women shared vertical power and through the clear clans, their different clans, that's more of a, a horizontal power, you know what I mean? Um, but they, but, but for example, you know, you did have, and as a sociologist, you would appreciate this, they did have sort of gender divided roles, although those roles were considered to be equal, but women were considered to have sort of the final veto power over um, issues of war or issues of economic importance that would affect the nation as a whole or, or the, the different peoples as a whole, because they were in, they were, um, you know, they, they raised, they were responsible for the children and for agriculture. So it was like, you know, they're responsible for the resources. Um, and the reason why the women were given this responsibility is because in these elite Mississippian cultures, it was men who had that authority. And as one Mohawk elder told me, I mean, this is what he told me, your listeners can decide whether this is true or not, is that men are crazy. <laughs> men are not rational when it comes to power. <laughs> you know, that's what he said. Men are not rational when it comes to power. They, 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 they seek their own gain. They forget about their children. They forget about, they forget about um, uh, a larger view. And in, at least in Haudenosaunee thinking, it's women who, as a group, who seem to have the ability to think more, you know, in that way, more globally. Uh, and, and so, but it's not that men don't have certain levels of authority. They do. Um, they have a, there's like a council where they meet and they, and they are representatives. The men are the representatives for their, the different nations. And uh, so it's, it's, but the point is, is that it took a long time to hammer this out. And there's a, there, there are rituals involved with this. There's a ritual called the consolation ritual or ceremony, which is a ritual that, um, that when you have two warring parties who cannot agree, um, they, they get together and they do a consolation ritual where they agree to disagree and coexist without harming each other. And just deal with that. Just deal with that tension mm -hmm. to see whether, because down, down the line, something may change. And they know that. Down the line, something may change. You know, it's, there's this Jewish Talmudic idea that, that, um, that you, have, you, have to have, you have to have discord a little bit. You have to have arguments. You have to have discussion. Because you can't always agree. These, because if if and if you can hold that tension, you're having a you're having a debate for the sake of heaven. Because whatever whatever life is, whatever love is, is bigger than any of our little iterations of it. So you have to create a space in which these oppositions can exist without being solved automatically, mm -hmm. and that somehow just that space alone can create 
a, a new reality that will permit these other things to be solved down the line. I mean, there's a great deal of faith and hope in that, but I think that ultimately, I think that at their best, ex, the best expression of that um, is what people like Thomas Jefferson hoped for. Thank you so much for listening and or watching, depending on where you found this podcast. I'm going to link in the description to Professor Wham's website. I'm also going to link two different YouTube videos where she was a guest and really got into fascism in the occult, um, coded uh, symbols used in, in like these um, alt-right heathen spaces, and other tools that you can use to help you inform yourself and identify what is happening and what is intentionally happening under our noses uh, so that we don't call it out. Um, if you want to follow Personal Pans, you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Personal Pans. Um, I'm perpetually on Twitter at Kali Butterfly. That's K-A-L-I Butterfly. Um, yeah, obviously, have a playful, have a curious day, and also be really vigilant because fascism has been making its march into para-weird spaces for decades, and it's not going to stop unless we fight it for as long as we have to.